it was a known fact, you know, that back then that if you didn't teach, you had to preach uh, because the other avenues were not open. And I knew I was going to preach. So the only thing left was teaching. To me, I, I think it's no question that education is the key. That was Mr. Edward Newton. He started teaching in Rock Hill, South Carolina in the 1960s. Welcome to the Teachers in the Movement podcast. Teachers in the Movement is an oral history project that explores teachers' ideas and pedagogy inside and outside the classroom during the U.S. Civil Rights Movement. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective. To watch the full interviews, go to teachersinthemovement.com. I'm Dr. Derek Allridge, and I'm a professor in the School of Education and Human Development at the University of Virginia, and I'm the director of the Teachers in the Movement project. And I'm Patrick Barber. I grew up in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and I was a student of Mr. Newton when he was assistant principal at Sullivan Junior High School. And I'm Mary Garner McGee, and I'm the audio producer for this podcast. So, Dr. Orridge, to get us started off today, can you tell us why you wanted to talk to Mr. Newton for Teachers in the Movement? Yes, I've admired Mr. Newton for a long time. I grew up in the same neighborhood where Mr. Newton lives, small neighborhood called Laney Terrace Drive in Rock Hill. Um, neighborhood was comprised primarily of um, educators, uh, principals, teachers, and uh, business people. And uh, what I remember about him growing up, he was a man of stature, he had a commanding voice, and he was also very kind and very nice. So I knew I had to interview him when I started this project. So let's hear a little bit about Mr. Newton's early life in Conway, South Carolina. And as a note of warning, the next section will discuss white supremacist terrorist organizations. I grew up in a small town, Conway, South Carolina, where most blacks made a living working in domestic jobs, uh, lumber mills, uh, farming jobs. Uh, during my early informative years, there that, that, that was a strong presence of the Ku Klux Klan in, 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 in our city. And uh, two or three times during the month, there would be parades that would come through and a lot of them would, would pass right in front of where I lived. And uh, the one thing that stands out in, in terms of my memory is that these parades were led by police. And, and in, in particular, the police chief would be in the lead car, you know, with the cross lit up. and. That it was rumored that you know there were, it was used for intimidation and going to different persons, especially activists. And uh, I can remember, you know, as a, as a youngster asking my father, you know, that where do we go if the police is leading the temple raid? I mean, who do you turn to for help uh, when these things get out of hand? And all they could do was just look at me and make just put up his hands and say, you know, like shrug his head, like I don't know. The amount of violence that black people had to endure growing up in the uh, Jim Crow South, I can only imagine what that must have been like as a small kid to see the Ku Klux Klan in a parade and to see them regularly. This was every day for, for black people. And uh, I have relatives who have told me similar stories about growing up and seeing the Ku Klux Klan, seeing violence uh, directed against um, black people. So. It's just uh, very troubling to think, think that, that that occurred. And as he stated, if you call the police for help and the police are leading the rally, then where do you turn to? 
That's uh, that's mind blowing. And you can't help but think, you know, how relevant a story like this is today when we're beginning to hear that police forces across the country have been infiltrated by white nationalists and white supremacist groups. So uh, this story is very relevant to what's occurring in many ways today. So we know that white supremacist terror affected many areas of life for African-Americans in the areas in which those groups operated. But this is a podcast about education. So what are the educational effects of living with this kind of terror? This is very relevant to education. If you read the work of historians James Anderson, Leon Litwack. Teachers lost their jobs. Mortgages were foreclosed. The name of the game is survival. But when I think about my work, I'm thinking always about the kind of history of education that I would deliver to prospective teachers. You will find that education and schooling were often sites of violence during the post-Reconstruction period on through the Jim Crow era. I'm reminded of a chapter in Leon Lipwack's book, Trouble in Mind. The name of the chapter is called Lessons. And in the story, this one African-American man was afraid of his son getting too much education because getting too much education would make him a uppity Negro and would increase the likelihood that he would be lynched or killed by white supremacists by the Klan. So education and schools are not at all detached from the terror that blacks experienced uh, in Jim Crow. Did teachers or schools play a role in community defense against these organizations? Yes. Oftentimes, teachers did not play a role in the public in terms of resisting um, these terror organizations. But I would argue that they did play a role inside the classrooms by how they taught and what they taught. And this is well documented in a number of studies that have appeared in the last few years. I'm thinking of the work of Jarvis Givens when he talks about how teachers uh, played a somewhat activist role inside classrooms by using what he calls a fugitive pedagogy and the work of Tondra Loda Jackson, who has written extensively about the role of black teachers in Birmingham and their activism in the civil rights movement. I find the language of fugitivity to be dynamic. It allows me to be truthful and honest about the violence, but at the same time, it allows us to appreciate the human struggle, the sacrifice, and the kind of pursuit of a new world that Black people were collectively engaging in. So my response is that teachers were, in fact, activists and resisted white supremacy by way of their pedagogy. In other words, um, by teaching about issues of democracy, equality, and freedom, they were engaging in a form of activism. And they also tremendously influenced their students who would later become activists and educators. While we're on this point, let's hear a little bit more about Mr. Newton's own schooling experience. As far as the schooling experience, there were were no school buses and our books and other materials were were mainly hand-me-down from the white schools. And uh, we had wonderful teachers, and, and they were, I thought, well-qualified, and, and they had our best interest at heart, and being an athlete, playing football and different sports, you always tend to remember, I guess, the coaches and things because they were 
sort of with you so much at the time and trying to teach you, you know, skills on the field as well as off. Parents were very close and supportive of the schools. And, and as I said, and I noticed that we, the materials we received, textbooks and other things that were sort of like hand-me-downs that had been used in, you know, in the white schools. And then they would just load them up and bring them over to, the, to our schools and we used them. And we didn't have a gym and uh, basketball was played in outdoors. Because I always remember, you know, like on windy days, you know, you'd be out playing and you'd, You'd shoot the ball and they wouldn't just take it off in this court somewhere. But I can remember playing football and, and uh, a lot of times the equipment we used were equipment that was discarded, you know, from the white schools because instead of us getting new material, they would just bring those and we would just use those, you know, as, as best we could after taping and patching them up. So Mr. Newton brings up playing football and being involved in athletics. And this is a really common theme that comes up in these interviews with teachers. What was the culture of athletics like for African-American students and communities during the period of segregation? Oh, it was it was huge. So first of all, let's just go back and look at historically black colleges and universities during the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. This was considered the heyday of historically black colleges and universities. And this was a period where much of the identity uh, to these universities was connected to two, two entities at the school, their football team and their band, right? So again, we see that that communal part of the black educational experience was very important. Uh, for someone like Mr. Newton, who went to an all black school during Jim Crow, he would have had a similar experience, although he was in high school. He would have been in a culture of what I call black educational communalism, where the coaches would know his family, the coaches knew all the family uh, members of his players, and um, the coach would often be like a second father to these um, young, young, young athletes. And second, playing football provided an opportunity for young black male students uh, or young black youth to leave their communities and go to college. Many of them went uh, and played football and they were on scholarships. And so it was just, it, it, was, it was just a very powerful, impactful uh, experience for them to, to, to play sports. And from high school, you decided to go to college. Well, in between, I went to the military rather than high school. I was 17 years old, and, 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 and it, like I said, it was a group of us, like maybe eight or ten, that decided to go in the military so that we could receive the military benefits to go to college. And uh, with me being 17, I couldn't go because I had to have my parents' consent. And all I, I remember well that uh, the other guys were able to get the parents to sign, and they could go, and, and my mother held out. She wouldn't, you know, she didn't want me to go, and me being an only child, too, and, and the war was going on in Korea. And, and she was afraid I'd go there and, you know, and in the mornings we were, we were, we were trying to get consent. So they'd all come up to my house and we'd sit around the porch out there and talk. And we just wear down, you know, and, and, and uh, the recruiting officer came and everything. So eventually she saw that my heart was in this and eventually she did. And then, you know, I went in and then served in Korea and in Japan and then came back and, and went to, uh, to Claflin and 
and from there, you know, to the other institutions. So Mr. Newton really had to persuade his mother to let him join the Army. Why might a black mother have been so hesitant to let her son join the military at this particular time? I would say, you know, growing up, I had relatives, uncles who were in the military, who were in Korea, and who were in Vietnam. And they often talked about their experience. On the one hand, they talked about how the military was further ahead than American society was when it came to equality and when it came to issues of civil rights. At the same time, they also have talked to me about how racism persisted in the military. And instead of going to the military, they told me that, you know, there are other options open for young black folks these days. You don't have to go to the military. We encourage you to go to college. And so I can imagine Mr. Newton's mother not wanting him to go to the military for fear of what might happen while he was in the military and would encourage him instead to go straight to college. But that was not to be. He decided to go to the military first and he would go to Claflin later. I went, I went straight to Claflin after, you know, after getting out of service. Okay. And at that time, did you know you were going to be an educator or a teacher? Well, it was a known fact, you know, that back then that if you didn't teach, you had to preach because the other avenues were not open. And the sad part was that, you know, you had to close your mind to just certain areas. You weren't able to think beyond what you could see that was available to you. And, 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 I, and to this day, I look back and I say, you know, you were, you were shortchanged so much so that you, all you could see was just two professions because to you, everything else was blocked out and it was unattainable. So you just limited yourself in terms of what you could do. I knew I was going to preach, so the only thing left was teaching. My mother was a teacher and she had strong influence on me. You know, she taught first grade or elementary grades for years. And, and I would watch her make preparations and she had to be sort of creative and doing things like to make copies. And she made this gel substance and, you know, would put down the master copy to get the imprint on the solution and then would take the other pages and would, you know, use them to, for, to make copies. And I would just sit there, you know, it was a gel-like thing she did and I don't know how she did it, but I would watch her. And she'd make a master, you know, with, and then take the other ones and just put on there and make copies. So many things had to be created because you didn't have the books and materials and resources. So therefore you had to rely on your own ingenuity to get this done and, and uh, this marvel at how resourceful she was, you know. I think how resourceful his mother was is representative of, I would say, almost all black educators in the South during the period that she was teaching. First of all, we know that the black schools did not receive the same amount of resources that white schools received and that black teachers often had to go into their pocket to um, make ends meet in terms of the resources they use. We also know that black teachers were often paid less than their white counterparts. So it doesn't surprise me that Mr. Newton has this very vivid memory of his mother being resourceful and then that having an impact on him. I would say that, you know, same thing for me. I, I became a teacher in 1989 and I have a very vivid memory generations later 
of my mother also paying out of her own limited salary to buy materials to use in her classroom. And so that had an impact on me. But the dedication of those teachers really also had an impact on us as well. I'm sure it had an impact on Mr. Newton and influenced him to a certain extent to pursue education as a profession. So Dr. Allridge and Judge Barber, you were both students in the same school district that Mr. Newton was a teacher and then an administrator in during the period of integration. What was the integration process like for the two of you as students? I recall my first three years of elementary school, I went to the mostly black Sunset Park Elementary School. And then when integration took place in 1970, uh, I remember going to fourth through sixth grade to Rosewood Elementary School, and it seemed that bus ride was an eternity even though I think it's probably only maybe four or five miles away. But I recall the the sense of having to get on that bus and leaving my community and going to places where I didn't know anyone. And most of the people did not look like me. So, you know, that experience was etched into my memory banks. And I still managed to survive that process. But again, just getting on that bus, whereas before at Sunset Park Elementary, if you missed the bus, you could walk up the street and across the railroad track and you would be at school. And it wasn't uncommon for you to be able to walk to school unaccompanied by a parent. And then there were times that you could get a ride to school from someone in the community. So you miss that sense of community by going to a school that again seemed like an eternity away from the neighborhood which you grew up in. Yes, I remember going to school in 1970 in the first grade and going to a school that was uh, predominantly white. So I never experienced segregation in my schooling, so I didn't know no difference. I do remember, though, and I can't recall what year this was, that there was a, a riot of some sort at a bus stop in Rock Hill, South Carolina, between black and white students. There were tensions because some teachers lost their jobs. Some of the students wanted to continue to go to the all-black high school, Emmett Scott High School. And one of the reasons we wanted to go to Emmett Scott was just the stature of the teachers and administrators there. They were larger-than-life characters. We heard about them growing up. Uh, one, one person I recall is Mr. Witherspoon who was at one point the principal of Emmett Scott, a legendary Rock Hill figure, what you would call a race man, a school man, who had great respect in the community. He was considered a great thinker, administrator. And, you know, many people growing up in Rock Hill, particularly black males, wanted to be like Mr. Witherspoon and some of these other black males who were served as principals and teachers at Emmett Scott High School. And so we lost that. Once the schools became integrated, many of these um, teachers and principals were displaced. Some of them left the teaching profession altogether. They retired. Some of them, however, did uh, integrate the Rock Hill schools and became teachers in the desegregated schools in Rock Hill. But I think that African-American students and African-American parents were the ones who ended up giving more toward making the schools desegregated. But that was our experience. Let's hear what Mr. Newton has to say. 
most of the black schools were being closed, I suppose, and then the kids had to go into another school and then they worried about uh, how they would be accepted and and would they be comfortable there and, and the school colors and school song, these things had to be worked out. And you know, you just felt like a stranger in someone else's schools, I guess. And it took time for these things to sort of work themselves out, you know. Uh, and there were student marches down, I think, in the superintendent's office in Rock Hill and demands that certain teachers be given, you know, positions. And because had you been chair in a school and then you leave another school, then you would lose that position. So there was a lot of administrative decisions that had to be made also. So in addition to his years teaching biology, math, and social studies, Mr. Newton decided to get a graduate degree in order to become an administrator. And those studies took him all the way from South Carolina to New York City. So Dr. Aldridge, can you tell us why he went all the way up to the north for his graduate degree? This was always fascinating to me. As I stated earlier, most of the people in my neighborhood were educators. And I was always fascinated when I would go to their homes and see these diplomas on their wall for master's degrees from places like Columbia University, New York University, you know, and other Northeastern universities. And I never understood that growing up. But I would later learn that states throughout the South would pay for African-American teachers to go to Northern institutions to receive their master's degree so that they would not try to desegregate Southern universities. In the state of Virginia, this was also a common practice. In 1936, there was an act passed called the Dobble Act, also known as the Educational Equality Act, which paid the tuition of teachers to go to Northern universities. So it was kind of a paradox. On the one hand, they were telling black teachers, you're not good enough to go to the University of South Carolina. You're not smart enough to go to the University of Virginia. But we're going to pay your tuition for you to go to Harvard, Columbia, and NYU. So that's just an example of the peculiarities of Jim Crow and how insane such a policy was. When I applied at uh, Carolina, and, and, and they wouldn't accept me because at that time they didn't want blacks to attend the University of South Carolina. So you just found a school and got admitted in the state of South Carolina, paid my tuition. Didn't bother me too much. I lived out in the Hall of Residence right on the East River in New York. And, you know, it was right down there, the village. And, and, you know, it was quite an experience. Well, I had relatives that lived in New York. So I would go and spend the weekend with them. And, and you know, and they would be with me. So, I, you know, I was pretty comfortable because I could move around with the buses and the sub after a while. And I sort of enjoyed it, yeah. I remember, you know, and I wanted to go to every building and, and I mean, every all the educational and, and 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 my family lived there for years, some of them 20, 30 years, and they had never gone anywhere. I went to the UN building. I mean, it just was the Coney Island, Statue of Liberty, all these things I just visited because I was so interested. And I said, you've been here 50, 40, 50 years and had never gone to all these structures. And then they started going with me since I was talking about it. Great experience, very learned experience. How, how many years did you serve as an administrator? I know you were, uh, were you more, did you serve more years? Yeah, definitely, yeah. Most, oh yeah, twice. Most of my time was spent in administration, yeah. 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 Um, 
Why did you decide to become an administrator? Well, I never thought about it. And, and uh, I, I guess the, the, the guy who was the principal at Sullivan just came in and asked me, you know, look, say, we've been watching you, and I think you got certain qualities that would, 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 would help out. And, and uh, for years, I, you know, he, he said, I've been observing you, and I, I, I wanted you to, I've got a job opening, do you want it? He said, you have to go back and get certified. And that was it. I never applied. He came and asked me if I would uh, be interested in doing that. And I said, yeah. What was your experience like as an administrator? Did you, did you enjoy it? Yes, yes. Because, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of it had to do with, you know, not only with, with the administrative side, but also the discipline side and trying to intervene in the lives of young men and trying to put them back on the right path in terms of their behavior and goal setting, that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's rewarded in that you see them now, you know, and they'll come up and say, you know, uh, I want you to know that that really kind of helped me. You know, it, it, at the time it was, you know, it was what was needed is what he's trying to say. What struck me most about Mr. Newton is that I've been knowing him all my life. And it was not until I interviewed him that I knew the details of his life and his experiences as a teacher and as an administrator. So it was just exciting to hear this information firsthand from him. And so I really enjoyed um, enjoyed talking with him. And one of the reasons that I admire him because he, like many other black educators in the community, laid a solid foundation for me to enter the profession of teaching and the profession of education. So I'm very grateful to him for this reason. Earlier I told you that uh, teachers and students and scholars and researchers will be um, viewing your interview for years to come. What would you want them to uh, know about you as a teacher and an educator? What would you want them to take home from this interview? Well, uh and the one thing I want to share would be that I would hope students today uh, understand that everything is wide open, the world is open, and you can go to the stars now. And all that's required is that you apply yourself and, and, and take advantage of, you know, what's there because it, the ones who battle to open the doors for you to, to have these opportunities, you walk right by as though the door was still closed and it's been, it's wide open. Walk in and take advantage. So my name is Derek Aldridge, and I am director of the Teachers in the Movement Project. I'd like to turn it over to my friend, Judge Patrick Barber, to take us out today. This has been Teachers in the Movement. For more information and to view the video interviews, go to teachersinthemovement.com. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is part of the Virginia Audio Collective. Our theme music is Summer Night by Vanilla. You can find their music at vanillabeats.bandcamp.com. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is produced by Mary Garner McGee. Thanks for listening.